Hi. How are you? Hi, everybody. Good to see you all. Brilliant Biola student right here. Yay. Yes. Hi, everybody. Good to see you all. Glad you're here. Well, oh, this is a wonderful sized group. All right, anything we should talk about before we dive in? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your amazing grace. Thank you that you've brought us here and you're here with us. And we never need to seek to know you apart from your enabling grace and the amazing, precious work of the Spirit in our hearts and minds. And Lord, we're grateful for Jesus in that we have full access to you through his finished work. And we're thankful that our lives as yours are lives of life and abundance, and joy, and peace, and an eternity with you, and meaning, and what we're created for. So Lord, help us all now as we go to your word and interact together to learn together the Spirit's help according to the scriptures we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to leave plenty of time for interaction, comments, questions about what I talk about now for the next few minutes, but also what we've been talking about, where we're heading. I know people are all over the place in their backgrounds when they come from here. It's been interesting to get feedback from different pastors and students and counselors, and some of it's diametrically opposed feedback, right? And uh, so, so I, I, I want to help you. I want to encourage you. I want to bless you, but I would love to just interact a little bit and find out what God's doing in your lives. And he's doing some amazing things. I've had some conversations, and God is working, and I'm thankful. Well, as I said this morning when I introed this topic, I have been a Christian as long as I can remember. My mother read the Bible to me when I was little, and at some point in my life, I knew I needed a Savior, and I knew Jesus was that Savior at a very young age to the point where I can't remember a time where I wasn't aware of my relationship with God through Jesus, and I can't remember a time where Jesus wasn't everything to me. I had a rough background and a rough home life and family life, and I desperately needed Christ to be my life, and it, by his grace, as long as I can remember that was the case, it doesn't mean my life wasn't tough, and I haven't had a battle, distraction, and idolatry, but I can remember telling my friends about Jesus in kindergarten, and that if they didn't trust him, they were going to hell, and, um, and it, it's sort of, he's been everything to me as long as I can remember, and so so I, I've been walking with him a long time, but man, do I find my growth, or even more than my growth, the lack of my growth, a perplexing thing. Actually, it's all, for all the things that make me question God and question the truth of the Christian life, it's actually the, the difficulty of my growth, the the timing of it, the slowness of it. I, I'm 58, and I've been walking with Jesus as long as I can remember, and I can't believe the level of immaturity sometimes in my life and in my heart. And sometimes, like in my prayer life, I wonder if I've grown at all sometimes. It, it, it's work so often for me to pray. And so I want to grow, and I'm committed to growing, and I want my life to be what God intends for it to be in a relationship with him. And I want fruitfulness in my life in ministry and being a blessing to other people. And so I'm really serious about growing and walking with Jesus. And I do think it's important to realize that a, a large part of our growth is mysterious. And it's a work of an infinite God working in finite, frail creatures. And that's at the heart of the mystery of it and his timing of it. And, and why he seems to help some people grow so fast and other people just seem to plod along for 85 years. And some people plod along and then he brings revival and then they're a completely new level that they carry out the rest of their lives. And it's amazing how different our growth is. Well, I do think it's mysterious and I think it's important to realize that, but I don't think it's mysterious when it comes to what our job is. What God wants from us. I don't think that's mysterious. And I don't think it's complicated. It's not easy. It takes patient endurance. But it's not complicated and it's not mysterious. And I think it boils down to nine 
main things when I read the Bible that we devote ourselves to. And if we do that, we'll grow. Or God's a liar, and God's not a liar. And he gives us what I would call habits of grace. But what I, I want you to realize is habits of grace, I, that's a title of a book by David Mathis that I stole for this because I just love that, that description of the things we do when we grow. But habits are grace, are spiritual disciplines, things we devote ourselves to, practice with our bodies. It's spiritual growth, but it's as embodied creatures. I'm very concerned that we not overly spiritualize spirituality. Mostly a normal life, rooted in the local church. And their habits, they're things we devote ourselves to, but it's grounded in grace. It's growth in godliness that is a gift from God through the kind ministry of the Holy Spirit. So their habits, I'm on a crusade to restore a positive connotation of a word like habit, or discipline, or even, believe it or not, religion. I want us to, to not so fear legalism or religiosity that we fail to have a healthy, positive, redeemed definition of words like discipline and habits and grace. You know, Jesus comes to Nazareth. It's one of the most stirring passages in the Bible. Jesus comes to his hometown after he's decided to launch his public ministry, and he starts talking with messianic authority. Do you know what the people in his little dinky hometown say? Who does he think he is? This, is? this is the carpenter's kid. He grew up where we know his siblings. And he's the Messiah. And it says they took offense at him. Jesus' life was so normal that they were offended that he would think he's anything but some punk kid from Nazareth who's the carpenter's kid. But throughout Jesus' life, we see words used like, when Jesus went to his hometown, as was his custom on the Sabbath, he went to the synagogue. Custom. It's just another word for habit. As was his practice. It's just how he rolled. Right? It's just how he lived. You could count on him. He was dependable. He wasn't waiting for some move of the Spirit to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. That's what good Jews did. And I'm writing a book right now, 20 Things Christians Should Probably Stop Saying. One of them, one of the chapters, is I think we should probably stop saying Christianity's not a religion. It's a relationship. You've all heard that, yes? Now, there's great truth in that. And it's a truth that keeps us from being merely religious people, religiosity, like the Pharisees, the religious leaders who, as Jesus said, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. We don't want that. But, you know, the Bible counters the opposite problem, too. It's not they know the right answers, but their hearts are far from. It's the opposite problem. They have zeal without knowledge. A lot of passion, but they don't know what they're talking about. And so we don't want either error. And we don't want to think the Christian life is just a list of things to do. But we also don't want to think the Christian life has no structure, has no clarity about what we do as Christians. As if we're all just these spirit beings waiting around for some work of the spirit to know what it means to live the Christian life. You know, maybe my grandparents' generation erred on the side of legalism. Maybe that World War II generation they were part of, that depression generation, were really concerned about getting food, not food on the table. Yeah, and dads back then didn't tell their kids they loved them much, but man, they stayed in the family and they worked really hard. Maybe they had the opposite, but I think we've swung in the pendulum our day. And I hear my students at Biola use phrases like, yeah, you, you know, it's not about what we do, it's who we are. They'll even have, make it really cool and pithy and say, you know, we're not human doings, we're human beings. Now again, truth to that, right? Ultimately, it's about who you are. Yeah. But does what you do have anything to do with who you become? Does what you do have anything to do with revealing who you are? Jesus, after all, said, you know a tree by its fruit, right? And, and so I'm trying to correct, I think, an overcorrection toward empty religiosity or legalism. Everybody with me? Now, I know that might be new stuff to some of you, but any questions or comments at this point? At any point, raise your hand. It will not be an interruption. I love interaction and give and take. 
Okay. So, I just want to make sure we have the right goals. The goal, ultimate goal, is not your development. It's not your growth. It's not your um, character shaping. It's not even the fruit that God bears from your life. That's not the foundational goal. You will miss it if we make that the foundational goal. The foundational goal is intimacy with and enjoyment of God, which bears fruit and glorifies Him, which is the working out of the gospel. Please listen carefully. We never work for our faith with fear and trembling. We work out our faith with fear and trembling. Yes? Faith's a gift from God. Grace is a gift from God. Salvation is a gift from God. Forgiveness is a gift from God. So we work it out. And so our goal is to not earn anything before God. Please listen to me and promise me you won't disconnect our habits of grace from the finished work of Jesus. Okay? So our goal is to just know God more, to enjoy Him more, to delight in Him more, to be satisfied in Him more, to have growing intimacy with Him more and more. That's the working out of the gospel. And it's 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. See, he did it in our place. He obeyed for us. That he might bring us to God. It's not just to be made righteous. It's to be made righteous so we can be brought to God and have a relationship with him that's intimate and unencumbered by our unrighteousness. Being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. That's what it means to exercise these habits of grace. We are alive in the spirit now and we walk according to to his plan for our lives. Romans 6, 4, same idea. We were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So the habits of grace are the walking in newness of life that fosters a relationship with God. They're not earning anything, proving anything, demonstrating righteousness that Jesus has done for us, but it's walking in this newness of life. When we baptize people in our church, I say, or our other ministers say joe have you trusted in jesus christ and jesus christ alone for forgiveness of sins and he says yes i have and i send then based on your profession of faith i now baptize you in the name of the father son and holy spirit buried with him in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life and everybody loses their minds it's fantastic and and that's that's this this recognition of dying with jesus paul's right that it's no longer i who live but Christ who lives in me. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So it's done by Jesus. We're not earning anything, but we are walking in newness of life. Yes? Promise me you won't disconnect our habits of grace from the finished work of Jesus. Okay? All right. So, we don't think like Muhammad Ali did. Look at what's on Muhammad Ali's gravestone. Service to others is the rent you pay for your room in heaven. Most people read that and go, oh, yeah, that's pretty cool. That'll make you live a virtuous, unselfish life. I must say, I, I read that as a Christian. So I feel like somebody punched me in the stomach. How much rent do I have to pay? What kind of room do I have right now? Is my room ever going to be sufficient to actually live in? Do I have one at all? You know what Muhammad Ali's wife said at his funeral? She said Muhammad was worried about his salvation every day. Every day he would wake up and say, I just want to get to heaven and I have a a lot more good deeds to do before I get there. When is it enough? And if you think you have enough, does that become an an arrogance that actually uh, makes you unworthy? It's grace. It's not what we do. So here's the the habits of grace we devote ourselves to. Nine of them. I, I think there are nine. I really have an aversion to sort of uh, life hack kinds of approach to preaching, like seven ways to have a better family, you know, nine ways. To, I, I just think that's a marketing scheme. But, but there is, I think, in, in the years of reading the Bible, I, I think, what is it I devote myself to? And I really, I think I've boiled it down to nine. There may be more, and there are some that are part of these bigger categories, but I think it's at least these nine things we do to grow. We devote ourselves to the Word. We become men and women of the Word. We read it. We memorize it. We meditate on it. We have it open on our tables as we're counseling people, referring to the scriptures. We, we uh, stop 
listening to music on a road trip and we read Galatians and talk about it. I mean, the Bible becomes a centerpiece of our lives. We become devoted to the scriptures and we become scripture-saturated people so that we're able to start to instinctively live according to God's word and ways. Yes? Two, prayer. Ian Bounds said the saint who advances on it. No, Jim Elliott said the saint who advances on his knees never retreats. Ian Bounds says who you are before God on your knees is who you are. People might think all kinds of things about you, but who you are on your knees is who you are. Prayer, communing with God. Now, like the word, we need to have a private component to the word in prayer. We need to have a corporate component to the word and prayer. And we need to have a throughout your day constancy to our lives in the word and prayer. So the word of God should be guiding you throughout your day as well as in your private time and in your corporate time. Right now, we're having a time in the word. And how did we start? With prayer. Right? And so... So word and prayer are both individual, corporate, and throughout your day sorts of things. As are, as is worship. Worship is something we do individually, corporately, and throughout your day. You should be worshipful. All of life should be worship. But I encourage you to have times of private worship. What do I mean by that? Expressing your heartfelt, grateful affections to God. If you just read your Bible and pray, I think that's a very short-sighted way of thinking about time with God. I think unless you express affection to God, ideally in singing, there's something about singing, I believe, even biblically, that fosters a tenderness toward the Lord. I do. I'm never in a good mood in the morning. Never in a good mood in the morning. When I wake up, Never in a good mood. Some of you are going to wake up in a minute because you're asleep right now. And, and then we'll see what kind of mood you're in. But, um, so I need to turn my heart toward a tenderness toward God. And singing is an amazing help for that. It's an amazing help for that. It's hard to be cranky and sing. And so I, I make myself sing worship to God, and it tenderizes my heart, and then helps me be worshipful throughout the day. And it helps me be worshipful when I come to a corporate time of worship as well. Four, giving. Giving. I don't care if you make $15 a week at your, uh, at your job uh, working at a market or something. I think we should always be thinking, how can I use my resources in any way? But I think particularly financially is important to think about to the advance of God's kingdom, that I don't just think about what I'm going to buy for myself with this, but I think about how I can fuel the work of God in this world with these, these dollars I just earned. And I, start young. And start when, you're, when you don't have a lot of money. Do you know the richer people get percentage-wise, the less they give? It's just amazing that wealth does not increase that. Yeah, tell me your name. Bryn, yes, Bryn. No, no, yeah, we're, we're getting service is one of them. See how it works together? Yes. Yeah, but I do, I, because the Bible, in my estimation, about 15% of the entire New Testament is devoted to our attitude toward money. And, and yes, resources in general are what we give. But there's something very specific. Jesus says you can't worship God and money. In other words, there are some sorts of things in life that quickly and easily become idols. Sex is one. Food is one. Money is one. And so the Bible gives lots of warnings and exhortations to watch these things. Yes? Amazing gifts from God. To be stewarded for good, but easily becoming idols. And so I don't want to make it too general that I lose the specificity the New Testament actually has toward money. Great question, Brent. I love it. But you'll see when we get to service that, that your concern is, is addressed. I love your concern, Brent. Yes. Um, so giving, yeah, financially. By giving, I mean financial. I mean that, that every time you get money, you don't say yes without thinking Lord, how do you want me to use this? Lord, give me a generous heart grounded in the belief that you'll take care of me even if I give in ways that make me gulp, right? And you'll watch God work and it becomes a joyful adventure to give in ways that feel risky. 
It's beautiful. See, yeah, giving. Uh, five, serving. There you go, Bryn. Serving. So serving is a more general kind of giving that is giving of yourself. It's an other focus. My friend Jerry Root, he often says, it seems to me there tend to be two kinds of people in the world. Here I am, people. And there you are, people. And you can usually tell which is which when they walk in a room. You know, do they move toward people wondering how they are and how they can bless them and how they can help them? Or is it all about making sure their best side is seen on Instagram or in the room? You know, is it, is it about uh, making sure everybody's impressed with my stories? I just love the guys who started one of their performances last night at the talent show. And they said, I'm going to be honest, we're just doing this because the ladies are watching. Did you hear that guy? Why'd we all laugh at that? The reason we laughed at that is because they were sort of pulling the curtain back on what's actually probably going on in them actually a little bit. But, but that instinct, right? I'm just trying to make a good impression here, right? And, and that's our instinct. But to be freed up from needing to do that because you know who you are in Christ so you don't have to play that game anymore is so much of what maturity is about. And what happens when that happens is you start to be allocentric, other-focused. And you start walking in a room saying, Lord, who can I bless? Who can I help? Not who can I impress with who I am in my stories. I played football for 16 years, and I was really good, and I never talk about it because I'm not sure which of my stories from my past are true and which ones are exaggerated anymore. I lost track because, you know, a kid who wants to impress people, prove he'll just add two more touchdowns than the ones he really had. And so there, there can be this in instinct in our lives that we just build up an identity, and, and we can actually get there where we're not even sure. Like, I often wonder, as everybody's meeting the on Sunday afternoon here, and they're meeting people and interacting, how many lies are told? Right? I, my, my, I remember the first week, freshman year, every semester, you know, I, I think all these freshmen are meeting each other in orientation and all this stuff, and I wonder how much they're lying to each other about who they've been in high school and who they are now. But when you're freed from that, you can be a there-you-are person, thinking about others with specific service that people count on you to do, and just throughout your day, picking up trash that you walk by service basketball coach at Biola, Dave Holmquist, he'll say to his players sometimes, and try to instill in them this kind of character, he says, Ben, he's got this really deep voice, there seem to be only two kinds of people in the world, people who put their shopping cart away at the grocery store, and people who leave it in the parking space. Something to that. It's just a mentality in life, right? And so service in specific ways, but throughout our days as well. Proclamation. Again, you typically don't see this on lists of spiritual disciplines, but proclaiming is not just something we do in obedience as an expression of our belief. It's actually something we do to deepen our belief. Like worship. Worship is an expression of what we believe, but it's also a deepening of what we believe. You know what Paul says to Philemon in verse 6 of Philemon? It's only one chapter. He says, Philemon, I pray you will be active in sharing your faith so that you, Philemon, will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. You expect him to say, so the people you're proclaiming to will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. He says, no, when you proclaim Christ, when you speak well of Jesus, he becomes more precious to you. Have you had that experience? That you, you preach Christ to someone, sometimes with fear and trembling, and when you do, you feel alive, you feel real, and Jesus is affirmed in who you believe him to be. Proclamation is a spiritual discipline that deepens our relationship with God. Fellowship. Committed to the fellowship of the saints. This is incredibly difficult, and I mean that primarily in the local church. It doesn't mean you don't have great relationships potentially outside the church with, with fellow believers. That doesn't mean you don't have great experiences in places like Hume Lake, but the local church is where it's real. The local church is where it's long-lasting. local church is where there's an address you can find, right? So you can criticize them, and, and you can and understand what it means to live body life in a way that's iron sharpening iron, which is at times really difficult because people can be annoying and hurtful and offensive, 
and disrespectful, and so can you. And, and so we devote ourselves to long-haul fellowship, not with a bunch of people we choose, but a bunch of people God chooses to be part of our local fellowship, and we grow in that context. Suffering. This may seem strange to you, that we devote ourselves to the habit of grace called suffering, but what do I mean by that? This world is filled with suffering. And it can be filled with two kinds of suffering. It will be filled with suffering you don't choose. But it can be filled with suffering you do. And I believe we should see suffering as a habit of grace in both kinds of suffering. What do I mean by that? One, when suffering comes your way you don't choose, don't think avoiding it at all costs is the only thing to be thinking about. There's nothing wrong with praying for suffering to go away. But until it does, we need to lean into it. Asking God, Lord, what do you have for me in this? What is it you want me to learn in this? Because after all, friends, we follow the man of sorrows, familiar with suffering and acquainted with grief. And he took our suffering on himself. But as his disciples, we walk the road to Calvary as well. We walk the road to Jerusalem as well. And in some ways, we suffer more than people who aren't Christians. Because the Bible says we groan inwardly like they don't. Because we see sin for what it is. We don't try to explain it away. So we devote ourselves to suffering, and we devote ourselves to suffering we choose. What do I mean by that? Well, just as an example, we have an amazing orphan care ministry at our, at our church. Almost 50 kids have been adopted in our church in the past 10 years or so, 15 years, I guess, and, and dozens and dozens of foster kids have come through, and some of those kids have disabilities, and a lot of those kids have trauma, and it makes your life really messy and way more difficult and adds doctor's visits, and it adds, it, you become a family in crisis very often when you bring an orphan into your life, so they're no longer an orphan. And it makes your life way harder. You suffer way more than you would have otherwise. Because you believe God can not only take care of the suffering you don't choose, but he can take care of the suffering you do choose. So you move toward people. What does it mean to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn? It means to choose suffering that you could avoid, but you don't because you want to be a representation of Jesus in their life. Uh, and finally, missions. I've never known a godly person who didn't care about the gospel reaching the nations, especially the unreached people of the world. Jesus gives us the great commission to go into the world, and that means we care about our next-door neighbor. It mean we, we, means we care about our community and our region, but it always means as well that we care about the uttermost parts of the earth. And so as we develop the heart of God, which deeply cares for the, the nations, we'll become more like God, and our relationship with him will be enhanced deeply, and our intimacy will grow. So what does that mean, to cultivate a heart for missions that'll deepen your relationship with God as you develop a heart like his. It means you actually have three options. I think biblically there are three options when it comes to missions. One, go. And I wouldn't challenge you all to seriously consider going. Or seriously, you, you could either go or you could seriously uh, care about, pray for, financially support, and send missionaries. Seriously, do that. I think the only other option is a third one, and that's be disobedient. I think either go or seriously support, pray for, care for, send, support, especially as part of a local church doing that, or be disobedient. I think those are our only options. And as we grow in these ways, as we grow in our heart for missions, we'll grow to be more like God, and our intimacy with, it, with him will be increased. Okay, just a few qualifications that I want to talk for the rest of our time. Let me make some points about this. I don't know if you noticed this, but as we went through this list, maybe some of you thought, you know what? These all have to be working interdependently. What do I mean? You know what the word interdependently means? Not, not independent. Uh, not, not just dependent, but interdependently. They depend on each other mutually. All of them do. What do I mean by that? Well, I already talked about it a bit in the beginning. Uh, you go to the Word, and you better do it prayerfully. You go to the Word, and it should be worshipful, right? You want to pray? How do you pray? You go to the Word to find out. You want to worship? How do you worship? You go to the Word to find out, right? And on it goes. If you're doing Word, prayer, and worship, you're going to be a person who gives if you're really getting the message of the Word and the heart of worship in a financial sense, right? 
and it leads to, to, to serving. These all work interdependently. I even hesitate to delineate them out from one another because of how interdependently they work, but we're finite creatures, so it's okay to break things down like this. But So they all work interdependently. Two, they look and feel mostly normal. I don't use the term radical Christian living or radical discipleship because what the world considers radical, the Bible just considers normal. And most of the Christian life looks really normal. Going to work, getting up a little early to read your Bible, changing diapers. I just heard a great definition of maturity. People were saying, when can you say a young man is mature? And everybody was debating it, and this mom said, I know, when I can trust him to take care of my baby for an hour and a half. Why an hour and a half? Because there's really likely to be a diaper change in that hour and a half. And if he can pull that off as a 14-year-old, I can say he's mature, right? A lot of 30-year-old guys can't handle that. So, um, you know, I want to change the world. I'll often say, why don't you start by changing a diaper? That, that's, that's a good idea. That's a good place to start. So, so they look and feel mostly normal. They're worked out normal life. And we tell dramatic missionary stories, and it makes it seem like you're not really living as a faithful Christian unless you're getting martyred. But even martyrs will tell you that most of their life on the mission field was doing laundry, being faithful, loving their neighbors, loving their wives and kids. Um, Habits of grace take discipline. I mentioned that quite a bit at the beginning. Habits of grace should be rooted in the local church. I can't emphasize that enough. That's the place God has established as the place we grow. doesn't mean these things all can't be worked out in other places in great ways, like a place like Hume Lake, but this is a temporary community that has value primarily because it contributes to your long-term community in your local church. Five, oh, do not neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Yes? And then five, habits of grace are spirit-empowered. We depend on him to always bring these things to life in our lives. They're means of grace because the spirit takes these objective realities and makes them transformatively true for us. And then they kill sin. It's the way you can kill sin. Now, some sin, I think, will battle through our lives, but some sin can actually be put to death. That's a command, to, to put sin to death in your mortal body. And I believe devoting to these habits of grace do this. So say you've got a pro- problem with pornography. I think sometimes we focus way too much on the particularities of that. And we think it's all about support groups with other people who have that problem and good filters on your computer, which I'm all for. But if that isn't in the context of growing intimacy with God in the bigger picture, it can become a really distorted perception even of yourself. Why do I not want a pornography sin problem in my life? Because it inhibits my intimacy with God. And it short-circuits my fruitfulness and glorification of Him and my helpfulness to other people. Not just so I can get rid of a porn problem. And so, so I want to put this sin to death in light of everything else we've talked about. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you're not under law, but under grace. And finally, and most important, habits of grace express and enable enjoyment of God. It's a profoundly relational thing. So Christianity is a religion, but it's a religion to deepen relationship. That's why we say that, in my opinion, overstatement. But there are habits, there are customs, there are... Uh, practices there are ordinances there are clear formal ways we work this out and if we don't believe this i think we're going to be really confused and lack the encouragement because i'll say to i'll say to to people you know how you doing how's how you doing in your relationship with the lord and they're not even sure how to answer that question you know my mentors from the from the greatest generation the world war ii generation they had no problem saying to me eric you're reading your bible How's your prayer life, Eric? Devoted to your church, Eric? <laughs> you know, if I talk that way to my students at Biola, you know, 19, 18, 20, they're like, you know, it's, it's not about a list of things to do. It's not checking boxes. It's deeper than that. What's at least that, right? It, imagine if I said, my Donna came to me and said, you know what, Eric, it's been three months since we went on a date. Imagine if I said, oh, honey, it's not about checking boxes. <laughs> date. Oh, just a list of go on date, 
ask how you're doing. Oh, it, honey, don't make it so simplistic. She ain't buying it. She ain't buying it. All right. Yes, tell me your name. Catherine. Well, you know that illustration I used last night with that young lady up front with her boyfriend having that very approach? Oh, honey, it's not about all this information about Bailey. Same sort of mentality, right? It, it's, uh, don't give me all these facts about you, all this information. It, this is organic. This, this is a heart thing. You're just reducing it. I'm not reducing it, but I'm saying that I, I can't love you if I don't seek to know you, and knowing you requires some information, Right? Even information like food you like, right? And what you played as a kid. We have this weird over-spiritualizing instinct these days. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to my students and, and I'll say, where are you going to church? And it's like, oh, you know, where other spirit leads. Oh, so in other words, you're flaky and unpredictable and unreliable and not really helpful to anybody. Now, the way I'm talking right now, offends a lot of people some some of you have smiles so i don't think you're offended but this is the way dads used to talk to their kids and coaches used to talk to their kids who who loved them and wanted the best for them right and and so i i just hope you hear a desire that you are actually able to say how you doing in your relationship with the lord you know what I think I'm doing well. Why do you say that? I'm in the Word, and it's becoming more precious to me. And, and I'm in prayer, and, and I'm seeing prayer start to show up in my life just throughout my day. And I love the people of God. After all, Jesus said, this is how they'll know you're my disciples, and you love one for another. And what does that look like? Oh, it's just a feeling. No, I serve in the children's ministry. I work in the nursery. I love the people of God by taking care of their babies so they can go worship without having to watch their baby all the time. Right? Guys go, oh, I'm a worship leader. I want to serve and try. I'm a worship leader. And I say, start in the nursery. You know, start, start in the parking lot, making sure nobody messes with cars. All right? And maybe you can be the rock star someday. Not really. Maybe a worship leader. But, but we, come, we come with these ideas that aren't grounded in needs. They're not grounded in in biblical priorities. I remember the, ah, anyway. All right, does that help? Oh, right, right, let me finish what I was saying, right? So, so when I talk this way, it's because I love you so stinking much that I don't want you to be stuck in this holding pattern and an inability to even know if you're doing okay or what it means to progress in this that it's so vague and spiritual and relational that it's got nothing concrete it's got nothing real it's got nothing that's worked out so my son is 10 and he says dad can i go lift with you i said yeah let's go so we went to the gym and we lifted for an hour we came home he jetted out of the car ran in the house i'm like man he must have to go to the bathroom no i go in his room he's standing in his room he whipped his shirt off and he's standing in front of the mirror, crestfallen. I'm like, Sam, what's wrong? He goes, Dad, it didn't work. <laughs> so different. I said, son, sit down. We got to have a talk about how this works, right? And that's part of the problem. There's this, I want that dramatic Instagrammable moment. Yeah, I want to serve, but I want to serve rescuing kids from sex trafficking for two weeks so I can put it on Instagram. I don't want to work in a nursery unnoticed for three years, right? Or fix stuff around the church when it needs to be fixed. Or give, a, give an elderly woman in my church a ride and help her get her wheelchair out of the trunk. <laughs> That's just too real. So, so it, it, I, I love you, and I want you to be able to feel like, you know what? I'm real. I'm doing okay. It doesn't take some mystical experience to feel like you're doing okay. And it doesn't take feelings on a daily sort of consistent basis to be a really faithful disciple. I want you to be freed from that kind of over-spiritualizing legalism. How's that? 
unless you have this incredible passion, then it's not real. No, man. You know, I, I want my, my kids to come home and say, Mom, I met this amazing woman. Tell me about her. Oh, she loves the Bible, Dad. And she fears God. And she's holy. Now, now we're talking, right? Now she's cute. She's a musician. I mean, she's... I wonder how many guys take up the guitar just because they know some people find it romantic, right? It would, just amazing. But, all right. Does that help? Okay. Other comments or questions? Tell me your name. Audrey. Great name. It's got a 50s thing. You do? Yeah. Good name for it. That's a bit of an overstatement of what I said. What I said was the ultimate goal is not my state. The ultimate goal is enjoyment of God, intimacy with God, and glorifying him through that. My righteousness through Christ initially is a necessary thing that God creates in me to enable me to go to him. But then what that produces is an ongoing righteousness that's actual in my life. So, so I grow in righteousness. Paul says it this way, Philippians 2, live up to what you've already attained. So I positionally have this in Christ, and then I live up to it actually in my daily practice. Yes? Yeah, um, what do we do when we don't feel like we're doing enough? Audrey, it would take at least 45 minutes for me to sit down with you and ask about 40 questions to find out how to answer that for you. But let me ask, answer it generally as I can. This, so this can't be specific for you, but it may apply to you, it probably does. Spurge, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, for every one look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. I think we tend to reverse that. Ten looks at myself, one look at Jesus. And so, whatever it is you, you need in your life, humility, confidence, joy, peace, rest, sh shalom, whatever it is, you're going to find that at the feet of Jesus. And you can't get to the feet of Jesus until you get to the end of yourself. And so just that question indicates to me a conscientiousness, a desire to be faithful, to live and walk righteously. And so someone who cares like that needs to hear massive doses that you are as loved as you can possibly be by God because he loves you in the Son. You are declared righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. It's a gift of God so that no one can boast. It's a done deal. When Jesus said it's finished, he meant it. So you're in the front row in a seminar on what you do to grow. That fact shows me that, that you care. Can't get anywhere if you don't care. And, and you're earnest, I can tell that. And so earnestness is desperately needed. The fact that you're here at 4 p.m. on Tuesday afternoon, it's an earnestness that we desperately need. Flippancy, trivializing, shallowness is, is the spirit of the age. And, and you're defying that in your, in your mere presence here. And that question defies that. You care. Great place to start. Conscientiousness, really caring, can easily become something to beat yourself up with. Never quite doing enough. That's why I wanted to start with the finished work of Jesus. Where we're free to be little kids taking God as seriously as we can and not taking ourselves too seriously. And so, so to walk in the freedom, the newness of life that is yours, not to be earned, not to be demonstrated or proved, but is yours. And now you live up to what you've already obtained. When I was a kid in my neighborhood, the main way we encouraged each other, especially when we were playing sports, was with a two-word uh, affirmation. This is so old school, I bet to you guys. 
But somebody make a nice layup, and, and I'd say, that's you. Anybody ever heard that or said that? There was a phase in the 90s where I think people were saying, represent. Same idea. Yes? Now, what is it now? Facts, maybe. But somebody, somebody would make, somebody make a layup. He'd say, now what you were trying to say was, that layup epitomizes the talent you have, the hard work you've put in, and the kind of player you are. But that takes way too long to say in a basketball court. So you just said, that's you. And if somebody make a stupid pass or a ridiculous shot, and you'd say, come on, baby, that's not you. Right? And I love that because that's how we should be with each other as Christians. When you see Audrey acting like Jesus, say, girl, that's you. Right? That's who you are now. You're living up to what you attained, right? And, and when, when you see a brother sin, say, come on, man, that's not you anymore. That's the old man. That's the old man looking at that. That's the old man talking like that, right? That's not you anymore. And I love that way of thinking about who we are and in fellowship encouraging our, each other in that way. Not to beat each other up. So I got four, to, four adopted kids. And I feel like in some ways my main job with my kids is to get them to convince that they're no longer orphans. And that's kind of true of all of us. We were all orphans until we were adopted by Jesus because of Jesus. And so, so I want my kids to know that their, their identity in our family is a done deal. Imagine one of my kids acted like an orphan does, stole, lied, you know, ate their last meal like it might be their last. And I said, come on, you better stop stealing or if you want to be part of his family. Nah, what do I say? You're part of his family. You don't need to steal anymore. It's not who you are anymore. No need for that. Everything in the fridge and everything in the will is yours, right? So you don't need to do that. You don't need to act like an orphan anymore. So what we devote ourselves to is never to earn or prove or demonstrate. It's done. Start there. That's why I got you guys to promise to start there in the beginning, remember? All right. Tell me your name. Hudson. Hudson. Named after Hudson Taylor? We have friends coming up this Saturday who have 10 kids, uh, nine redheads, and uh, an African-American daughter is the youngest. It's beautiful. So Hudson. And, and, and every one of their kids is named after a missionary. Okay. Their second boy is Hudson Taylor Clark. Yeah. Yeah. Great question, Hud. And I, and people call you Hud. Yeah. Great question, Hud. And, um, and you know what's interesting about your question? It really points us right to the New Testament because do you know in the New Testament we've got this problem between legalism and cheap grace? There are entire letters written to churches whose problem is primarily legalism, right? Galatians, that's their problem. We've got churches to whom letters are written, and it seems like their primary problem overwhelmingly is cheap grace, James, right? So we got that problem, right, in the first century. It's nothing new with your kids, yeah? And some of it is an individual kid, because you got kids probably, one of them's living in Galatia, Right? And one of them's living in James's church, right? Same church, different, different places they're living mentally in their hearts, right? So contextualizing is really important. Every time I get up in front of my congregation or a group like this, I know I've got people living in Corinth sitting out there, right, who, 
are just shrugging their shoulders at blatant sin and don't care. And I know people are beating themselves up because they forgot to read the Bible yesterday. <laughs> and so contextualizing, right? And what I'm trying to do is somebody who works with, with young people constantly saying, where are we right now? Knowing there's always diversity out there. It, it'll, it'll drive you in completely insane just trying to even teach a group like this and how diverse everybody's come from. That's why I trust the spirit to know exactly what you need and the kid, every kid in your group needs to do that. But as far as what you do as a leader, be a man who speaks the truth in love and is a man who has integrity and discipline with tons of grace. I do this, um, where's my phone, where's my phone, oh here it is, let me read a little text exchange I just had with my son, you don't know him, anybody know my son, all right, so I'll, I can get away with this, I'm like dad, my son is an amazing kid, all my kids are, have just incredible qualities, but, but Sam, Sam texts me all the time, which I love, I hope that doesn't stop. Like he texted me yesterday, Dad, everybody's riding their bikes to the gym. I guess it's the price of gas. Just, um, Dad, um, Dad, I, I just military pressed 125 pounds seated. I woke up this morning feeling huge. Mommy, <laughs> Mom even said it. But then he texted me today, um, Dad, <laughs> my wife's coming up here, so she's at Costco this afternoon, right? He goes, Dad, shopping for food is literally my third, mo my a third most hated thing to do. And I say, uh, be thankful that you have money to buy food and incredibly numerous options and high-quality food to buy. Try to see it as an amazing privilege. I love you, my boy, and I'm really glad you're helping your mama, shop. Um, uh, what's the number one and number two things you hate? Right? <laughs> You're all wondering, right? And he says, um, number one is when someone younger than me asks me to do something for them when they should just do it for themselves. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, and number two is, is working outside in blister, uh, blistering heat. And then he said, but then listen to this. He says, to be honest, I wasn't really helpful to mama. He's 16. I wasn't really helpful to mama. I was pretty grumpy and mad and annoyed, and my knee was hurting after practice. And I had, I had a shin splints, and it just wasn't my day. So how do I respond, right? Um, I say, I'm sorry to hear that, my boy. There's always grace and the ability to make things right. Right? So did you hear me exhort my son, right, both to not hurt himself lifting and to be grateful for groceries instead of having a bad attitude, but, but then not be okay with him making, being in a pain to my wife. So I texted my wife and I said, I, I, Sam was honest with me and I really appreciated it. And um, she said, yep, he was a butt. And I confronted him. So, so that's what I mean. It's, it's tr truth and love. And it's, it's mingled with grace. And so who you are is going to help be helping that cheap grace kid and that legalistic kid. And the way you're actually doing this, that's going to be the lead of your ministry. And then you point him to the word. And you do what I was trying to do the whole time today. Did I not do, try to do everything I could as a teacher to get it to be grace and discipline? Right? Working really hard to ground it in the gospel. And, and not, you know... Because they're going to read their Bibles, and they're going to read Jesus say things like, if you love me, you'll have flittery romantic feelings about me. No. If you love me, what does he say? Feed my sheep, right? Do, do serve, one of the nine. He also says, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. You'll do what I tell you to do. And, and so we, we've got to have both, and I don't want to swing on the pendulum. And every time I know I'm talking to Galatians and, and James's audience and Corinthians at the same time. So you got to be gospel grounded but not fail to, to get to the reality of what the Bible actually says. Yeah, that's why we've got to know the Bible. Yes, sir.
Tell me your name again. Doug. Hey, Doug. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, I'm, I'm trying so hard this week to get them to appreciate the importance of thinking and ideas. I think one of the biggest problems in America, it's actually led to incredible industriousness and productivity, but if you want to find one philosophy that drives the American mentality, it'd be called pragmatism. It's probably actually the only truly American-born philosophy, William James, pragmatism, which is what's true is what works. And the church has just been addicted to pragmatism. That's why I said in the beginning, I don't like seven steps to this, just do this. And, and, and so I just, I, I don't, so I'm trying to combat, yes, this idea that uh, it's just vague and it's spiritualized and relational, and I want to give it some con concrete practicality. But, but I'm concerned that we won't appreciate the ideas. Uh, like, I want you to know who my wife is. So my kids go around. And, and when they were little, I, we started this practice. I said, all right, kids, tell me what's one, one reason you love your mom. And it was all practical. She makes us dinner. It was, she helps with my homework. Before you know it, you're like, oh, so you like her for all the stuff she does for you. And I tried to train them, and they can do it now. They say, I love mom because she tells the truth. I love mom because she has a gentle heart. So her character now becomes what it's about. And, and I think the American instinct in the church has been to rush to pragmatism to rush to practicalities and, and, ha and life hacks and tips and how to do that. And I want it to get on the ground. I do. But we're incredibly impatient in thinking through ideas. And so we're incredibly, um, incredibly diluted when we hit the ground and we run out of gas really fast because it's not driven by deep thinking about the things of God. It, it's just so practical. So I, I totally get what you're saying, Doug, and I don't want to neglect that. And, and people thrive on that, but I do. I, I want to help create a difference in an, in an instinctively pragmatic solution. So my students take theology, and I want them to know how much theology is practical and gets in the streets, but they need to be patient enough to enjoy thinking about God without rushing to, oh, this will help me argue with my Mormon friend. Right? Or, oh, I see how this applies to my life. I don't want to rush. Like, if I do take Don on a date, which is something I need to put on my list of things to do for sure, when I go on the date, I'm going to want to just enjoy her, who she is. And not at the end of the date say, okay, what's the cash value of this date? How's this going to work out in our lives? Right? It's primarily, I just had a sweet time with my wife where we grew deeper. See, that's where the relational aspect of it kicks in. And so when we're talking about truth, we got to back way up and first of all, talk about what truth is. Or we just keep using words we never put any definition to. That's my huge... Start asking people what they mean by all the words they use. They don't know. They don't have definitions. They don't have answers to them. And so we run out of gas right away when things get hard. We leave a marriage because it's tough because we don't have a biblical idea of what marriage is and what covenant really means and what faithfulness looks like and what unselfishness looks like. And so we're jerked around by all of these worldly concepts and ideas that are driving. You're being manipulated constantly by social media and the ideals you imbibe. And I'm just trying to correct them a little bit. So yeah, I, I do run a practical. Friday's very practical as far as how we walk this out and live this out. Um, 
But, but, but part of my, my deep desire is that we learn that, you know what, how I think, the ideas I absorb, first of all, I need to know what ideas are and how, how I work, and then the ideas I absorb are what determines how I feel and how I live. And so I need to think really, really well and have ideas that God tells me are true even before I'm sure how that's going to work out practically. Yeah, does that help? Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Doug. Yeah. That's good. That's good. Tell me your name. Arden. All right. Thanks, Arden. Very helpful. That's good. That's good. Yeah, yeah, that's good. And, and that's why when the rubber meets the road and peer pressure comes and social media bombards, so often we cave because we don't have the, the, the ideas and the character that, that those ideas shape to give us the, the ballast to keep us upright. And we're tossed around like, like ships on the ocean. With, with nothing solidi solidifying us at the core. That's good. One more. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, that's a great question. So speaking the truth in love, especially in a culture where truth at all seems unloving, if it's conflicting your personal view of things right now. Anything that it says anything but cool. When I moved to Southern California from the Northeast, it was, in the Northeast, people are very direct. And here it's like, cool, cool, in Southern California. Everything's like, cool. And I'm thinking of saying, yeah, I killed my mother and all that. See if they just keep saying, cool, cool. <laughs> because everything's cool and and so to say uncool what what do you mean uncool what you're supposed to say is you know that's not the way i do it but i'm happy for you and when somebody says that to me i say no no please if i'm believing things that are lies don't be happy for me right i'm betting the ranch in this christian thing if jesus didn't rise from the dead i'm an idiot the bible says it itself so, so don't be happy for me if I'm going down an unwise, untrue path. But it's bizarre. It's like, hey, cool, whatever. That's not love. And, and so, you know what? Part of the deal is we're just going to have to be more and more okay with being unpopular. We just are. Jesus says, the world hated me. It's going to hate you too. Not because you're a jerk, but because you're standing on the truth. And because you love people so much, you won't tell them lies to make them happy and make them like you. 
And so part of it is just being okay with being affiliated with Jesus in a culture that's increasingly hostile to Jesus and his ways. We need to be okay with that. But then, yeah, don't be a jerk. And I don't think you are. The fact that you're asking that question, and I just picked up a little bit of who you are, that's not going to be your problem. Tell me your name. Grace. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. I'll bet you $1,000 your problem is never going to be being overbearing and harsh and arrogant. No way. Is that your problem? Come on, Grace. That's not your problem, is it? No. I'll ask your friends. It's not your problem. The fact that you're asking that question shows me that's not your problem. In 90% of my students, that's the question they're asking. It's not, you know what the number one adjective is used to describe the disciples in the book of Acts? Bold. Bold. That's not the adjective used to describe most Christians these days. Our problem is that we're not, I know social media gives you the impression that Christians are a bunch of idiots carrying signs at the end of the parade saying horrible things. That's like 15 people in Wyoming. It's not the church, right? <laughs> Seriously. I'm serious. We buy this idea that Christians are a bunch of eight angry, hateful people. I, I know Christians. They're incredible. They're incredible. They die for you. And I watch them give their lives in all kinds of ways. Don't believe the hype about the stereotype of Christians. It's not true. We're not a bunch of overzealous, Bible-thumping idiots. Look at you guys. You're beautiful. And you ask questions like, I don't want to hurt people's feelings. What do I? That's the kinds of questions we're asking. And, and so I, I'm just concerned that we not buy into a, a, a media perception of ourselves that keeps us from being who we actually need to be because we're overreacting against a false perception. We, you know, we got to end now because it's seven minutes ago this was supposed to end, but I'd be happy to stick around for anybody who wants to stay. But let me pray for us. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for your word, for the Spirit's work. Thank you for the fellowship of the saints that we all get to learn, most certainly myself included, as we interact and think about these things together. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.